city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Welcome to the Green is the Colour podcast. Uh, before we start today, I do want to dedicate this episode to Bernie Fagan. You may know today's guest by voice, if not name. He's currently Fox Sports' lead play-by-play announcer for soccer. But before that, he called games for the USL Timbers. And before that, he was a fan, having grown up in the soccer ecosystem created by the NASL Timbers. I'm happy to have John Strong here. John, how are you? Hi, Billy. I'm I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm going to get into a more formal introduction, which is um, long, so you can... Get a drink if you need uh, and come back. John was born in Portland, Oregon and attended Lake Oswego High School, where he founded Laker Broadcasting. He graduated from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. Well, at the University of Oregon, John called women's soccer, softball and lacrosse for the college's KWVA, as well as was the play-by-play voice of the Eugene Generals hockey team. John started working at Portland's KXTJ or KXL, the game, radio station while in college and was hired full-time by the station, eventually producing the Bald-Faced Truth radio show and hosting his own show, Strong at Night. In 2010, John became the play-by-play announcer for then-USL D2 Pro side Portland Timbers and was the lead Timbers announcer for FSN Northwest in the Timbers' first MLS season in 2011, where his call of Darlington Nagby's goal was honored as MLS Broadcast of the Year. The following year, John was named Oregon Sportscaster of the Year by the National Broadcaster and Sports Writers Association. In addition to covering the Europa League for Fox Soccer and MLS and the English Premier League for NBC between 2012 and 15, it was the latter year that he started working full-time for Fox Sports as the lead soccer play-by-play announcer, covering not just Major League Soccer, but the 2015 Women's World Cup in Canada and 2023 in England, as well as the 2018 Men's World Cup in Russia and 2022 in Qatar. He's the voice of American soccer on Fox, but more important, he's one of us. Welcome again, John. I appreciate that. I have to be reminded sometime that 2010 was not USL. It was USSF Division Two, which is that's an entire podcast episode on its own for what that whole crazy right. year was. But uh, yeah, no, a, a lifetime and a half and still hopefully plenty to go for me here. <laughs> Fantastic. So oh, I want to take it back a bit, if I can, and just kind of start growing up. What What role did sports play in the strong household? You know, it's interesting because, and and I'll sort of, I'll jump ahead and jump back and forth a little bit for the purposes of this. When I was a kid, and I was born in 85, so the Timbers didn't exist anymore, but I knew of the Timbers. I had, when I was a little kid, I had a Portland Timbers t-shirt. My mom, when she would do the gardening, had a Portland Timbers 1982 schedule seat cushion that she would use sort of in her gardening. I, I would learn later why but at the time it was just I sort of knew there had been a soccer team called the Portland Timbers and so you know neither my parents they had both gone to Timbers games again I didn't know the story yet of of why they were there and all that that went into it but my dad would travel for work he'd see soccer things he'd bring me back soccer jerseys um 
he had a good friend who, uh, who was a big soccer guy and, and we'd go to UP games and I was of the era that was hit hard by like 94 World Cup, 96 MLS, the launch of the FIFA video games, the advent of the internet, all those sorts of things. And so by the time of 2001, I, I had become a massive soccer fan. It was it was so much of my life. And so the timing was perfect to then have a team returning and having it be called the Portland Timbers. I knew enough of that history. I remember still sitting in the in the family room listening on the radio to that first Timbers game in 2001 at El Paso. I was at the first Timbers game, what, a week or two later. I still have the ticket stub somewhere, the game against Seattle. Um, so it was it was a part of my life very quickly. I would attend whatever games I could. Um, you know, I joined the Timbers Army in, in 2003-ish. I mean, joined sort of in, in sarcastic air quotes. I started sitting with them and yelling and, and bringing my plastic horn. But so it was always a big part. And sports has always been a big thing. But But like I said, I was of the age that soccer hit me perfectly and being in Portland, but also specifically having these historical family connections that I would come to understand later in 2011, I had a big predisposition um, to becoming a Timbers fan and having that be a big part of my life. So it feels all, you know, it was like it was written in the stars the whole way, even though, you know, as ever, it's a random series of events that ends up coming to fruition. So you've got to get back to that seat cushion. <laughs> I So what's interesting is I have one. I have a pristine one now that I was able. I, I don't know where I acquired it from, um, but it's the 1982 Portland Timbers. I can actually see it over there in my office. Has like the schedule, all that. So I'll jump ahead. In 2011, these stories became known to me. My grandfather in the 70s and 80s worked for Louisiana Pacific, and he rose to the level of, of being... CFO, Chief Financial Officer. Well, the CEO of Louisiana Pacific is Harry Merlo in those days. Harry Merlo of Merlo Field at the University of Portland. Harry Merlo, who, among other things, owned the Portland Timbers in the early 80s, their final few years in the NASL. What I didn't learn until 2011, when the Timbers were in MLS and I'm the TV announcer, and it was almost like it was locked away in my grandparents' brains that they had never told me these stories, is how involved my family had been in the Timbers. My grandfather would represent the Timbers at NASL owners meetings because Harry trusted him. And my grandfather would tell these stories and he's like, you know, I'm in a room with Lamar Hunt and these, you know, huge titans of sports and industry. And he's like, I'm an accountant from Coos Bay. What am I even doing there? It was quite surreal to be in those moments. In the summer of 81, Manchester United came and played against the NASL Timbers. And as Harry was not at the time married, my grandmother was designated as sort of the corporate wife. She would show the directors of Manchester United around the Portland area. And again, this is Manchester United early 80s, very different. But as she tells the story, they arranged for a brand new, fresh off the lot Ford Mustang convertible that she would drive the directors of Manchester United and show them Portland the day of the game. Well, it breaks down up in the Columbia River Gorge. And so she's on the side of the road with the directors of Manchester United, you know, stuck on the side of the road in a pre-cell phone era. She's like, they couldn't have been nicer. I have an itinerary of the following winter, winter of 82. My grandparents were part of a delegation from the Timbers that traveled to the UK, went to a Manchester United match. Um, one of the really neat things, 
at this time in 2011, my grandparents were, were as grandparents do, they're downsizing, they're cleaning through boxes. They found a pair of cufflinks that Harry Merlot had made for his board of directors. So maybe 10 pair of these cufflinks exist. And they're very, very gaudy, very sort of late 70s, early 80s fashion, big, heavy gold chainmail clasp. And it has the old Timbers logo. And my grandmother had them clean. And so I would wear them on a couple of occasions. I had to buy a shirt like with French cuffs to right. learn how to use cufflinks. But there's a As couple of occasions I, I would call Timbers games in those days wearing these cufflinks that very few. And so that was when a couple of years ago, the Oregon Historical Society had a big exhibit on the history of Portland soccer. One of my wife's jerseys from the Portland Reign and then these cufflinks um, were amongst the, the displays there, which because it was a particularly unique sort of. So, yeah, I mean, my mom would have Timbers players like Willie Anderson come and speak to her. She was an elementary teacher. And she'd have players come speak. Um, there's a story about my aunts who were in college at the time getting a summer job at the Timbers offices, which at the time was the building across the street where the U.S. Bank is now. And they were painting the building. But as college age girls who maybe don't have a lot of painting experience would do, they ended up dripping paint all over a couple of the players' cars. Okay. Like all of these sorts of things that I would I came to discover that my family had a really strong connection with the NASL Timbers. Like my dad would go to games all the time when he was in college at Lewis and Clark. So as I say, for me to then end up in the Timbers army, a part of the broadcasts being the, the TV announcer coming into MLS, it feels predisposed. It feels predetermined. Um, even though I didn't understand much of any of this history until much later, but it, it, it's, it's a neat thing now to have, a, to have it in my blood, but then also it's allowed me to collect all sorts of, I have a pair of vintage tumblers that in the evening, if I'm folding laundry um, and the kids are asleep, I'll, I'll pour a little something in. And it's got the old Timbers logo from the 1970s that like my great aunt found, like just mm -hmm. things like that. So it's, it's neat to have that history and that connection, even though it's been over a decade now since I left the team in 2013. Um, and it was to sort of set up a, a future conversation as part of this, one of the great joys I got during COVID, during the first lockdown, when Root Sports was replaying old Timbers games from 2011, the amount of correspondence I got back from people who had not only no clue that I had been the Timbers announcer, because if you became a Timbers fan in like 2015, when they won MLS Cup, a lot of people did. You would have never known I was the local, but that Robbie Earl of NBC Premier League fame right. was my analyst. Like that was the local TV team in those first couple of years. So it was fun to have some of that history rediscovered. Um, and yeah, it does sometimes throw people for a loop who only know me from what I've done at Fox to know, you know, quite how much a part of my life the Portland Timbers have been, let alone when people are surprised that we still have our season tickets and I still go to a couple games a year and I'll bring my son or that's like a date night for my wife. And I, I always get sort of stunned. Like, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I live down the way. It hasn't not like I've left. So it's, it's neat to have that long, long standing connection. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's still the same address too. It's still the same place that brings us together, you mm -hmm. know, over generations, um, you know, going on 50 years now, even someone yeah. like you who could probably call the timbers and say, Hey, I'm Sean Strong of Fox sports can you give me some and they would right someone at that sort of station in sport i do that, that for you a would. parking spot i I, I pull strings for parking but i i have paid should. ever since i left the team 
I have paid for my tickets out of my own pocket, yeah. though. Yes. Brian Gant does the same thing. He's got Steve and his wife who have season tickets, and they're in the same place uh, every game. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I want to... I, I keep wanting to go back. I'm I'm holding off. Like you probably done stories, but I also, I, yeah, I'll hold off right now. But I do want to say this. Uh, where did Laker broadcasting start? I'm going to kind of move us forward a little bit into yeah. like your proper uh, proper broadcasting in your high school. You went to Lake Oswego High School. How did that? And, start? and it connects. It connects to the stadium eventually as well because that was me. From as young an age as I can remember, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And Bill Shonley calling the Blazers games when I was a young kid, that was a massive part of it. Going to bed at night, listening to the Blazers, listening to Bill's voice, wanting to do that. Even at age, I didn't really understand what that exactly was. So my senior year of high school, um, under threat of being cut from the soccer team, despite ostensibly a no-cut policy for seniors, because I was that terrible, um, I was sort of like, okay, I need, I want to get this going. And so, you know, an opportunity presented itself. Bob Akamian, who has been involved off and on in different ways in Timbers broadcasting going back to 2001. I think he might've called that first game in 2001. Um, he was the connective point to, to this company that, and again, it's funny to explain. So this is, this is the fall of 2002. This is when we're just transitioning from dial up internet to like ethernet, like that's becoming a thing. We were one of less than 10 schools in the nation where you had students calling the football and basketball games on the Internet. We had an audience of my parents, my buddy's parents and the one kid who had mono that fall and couldn't come to the football <laughs> games. I'm not that that's a that's a very true story. So what's fun about it, A, is that I did it with my buddy, Eric. He and I worked together on the student newspaper. He knew how to get PTA money. And so in exchange, I said, you become the analyst. Um, fast forward to now, every World Cup I've done, he's sitting right to my left in Australia, in Qatar, um, in Russia, you name it, other places this coming summer, Copa America. Eric will be on my left and Stu will be on my right. And that's a relationship that goes back to middle school. One of the really neat moments of that is our senior year in 2002, our, our football team for the first time ever makes the state final. And actually the semifinal and the final were both at that time played at what was PGE Park. And I remember how incredibly exciting that was all of the decades of going to games there. I had a, a birthday party when I was like six at a Portland Beavers game. I still remember my first ever pro soccer game in 1998 on a random Wednesday in April, the San Jose clash. And they weren't even the earthquakes yet against Chivas Guadalajara, which was a weird test balloon to sort of gauge the viability of bringing soccer back to Portland. Um, and to actually get to, for the state semifinal Thanksgiving weekend against Canby, walk up the steps and actually go up to the top level of PGE Park and go across that catwalk and, and walk out to the press box that hangs from the roof that I had seen a thousand times in my life and always wondered what would it be like to actually be allowed up there and how incredibly exciting that was to have my name on a list and be allowed up there. And we had, it was the upper half of one of the booths. So we didn't even have a full field view didn't even open to anything. We were sealed off from the world. We were basically above our team's like coordinators. But to be at PGE Park calling a game was incredibly exciting. Um, and so that was a, a really fun moment in what was the beginning of everything for me, creating this chance um, to start calling games as a high schooler and then kind of rolling that into 
you know, Eric and I doing the same work at, at KWVA and, and online in Oregon. Yeah, this is special. I didn't know about Eric and I'm glad you mentioned him because again, something that just started, you know, a couple guys trying to do something fun uh, and really being into it. And here he's yeah. still with you. He's been massively important to me. He's, he's someone who I say, I trust my life to when he puts a note in front of me during the world cup final a year ago, and there's 25 million people watching, I, I trust him with my life. And so it's neat to have a relationship like that that goes back a very long ways. I only get him for big summer tournaments. I don't get him like for regular season MLS games. Um, but to have that connection that goes back quite that long is really, really special. And that's where I say, when we go into these big games, if I have Stu to my right, if I have Eric to my left, I feel bulletproof in that. And that, that's that's a really neat place to be in. Fantastic. So did he go to the University of Oregon with you as well? And He did. Uh, His yeah. He, he was going to go to Oregon anyway. Eric's dream was to cover the San Francisco Giants for the Chronicle. He was a newspaper guy. And now he's been the voice of Hermiston Athletics and basically one of the big radio voices of, of Northeastern Oregon for the last 20 years. Wait, stop. Um, so, so, I, so, so you're telling me right now, uh, I forget even what year it was. It's spring, right? So even this fall, I'm going to hear somebody calling the Hermiston football game who is going to be by your side for the 2026 World Cup. Yes. Yeah, he's he's been doing Eric has lived a double life of he's been a, a teacher and a coach and a radio broadcaster in Hermiston and Umatilla, Oregon. And then in the summers, he hops on an airplane and travels around to World Cups. He's also worked two Olympics for NBC as a statistician, researcher and spotter. He was with Arlo White at the Tokyo Olympics in the summer of 2021. So he has this fascinating double life that he lives of um, school administrator, radio broadcaster, sort of the mayor of Hermiston, Oregon. And then he goes and, and experiences life with us at big soccer tournaments. It, it's the neatest thing in the world. I love I, it. I love this state. I love this game. It's fantastic. <laughs> so was the University of Oregon then a foregone conclusion for you? More or less. I grew up a duck. I'm drinking from an Oregon duck mug for the benefit of those listening to us who can't see it. Um, my grandfather was a duck. My aunts and uncles were all ducks. I always knew that's where I wanted to go. Um, and it gave me an opportunity on the radio that opportunities came to me quick at the campus radio station just to get on the air. Eric and I started our sophomore year, started hosting the weekly sports radio show. What's funny, our second episode ever. So this is the fall of 2004. The U.S. women were playing in Portland against Canada. It was their post-04 Olympics tour. And I got the email address and the phone number of a guy named David Applegate, who was at the time the press officer for the U.S. women's soccer team. And I said, hey, I'm I host a radio show on the campus station at the University of Oregon. Could I have one of the U.S. women's players on my show to promote this upcoming match in Portland, which bizarrely uh, David agreed to. So that was how Abby Wambach became the guest on the second ever edition of Quacksmack on KWVA radio, which is hilarious to me. Um so we did all of these things at Oregon. Incidentally, University of Oregon being there was how I got into the Timbers because my sophomore year, um, Andy McNamara, who was a prior guest on, on these podcasts, yeah. who was the radio voice of the Timbers, he got a job in the sports information office at Oregon. And I had already, you know, at that point I was in the Timbers Army. I would sit in class with my Timbers Army shirt. I had Timbers Army stickers on my computer um and 
it was working with him with what I was doing at the campus radio station and then calling games online. It was that relationship and that connection that opened the door for me to start as an un very unpaid intern with Timbers webcasting in, in 2006. So, you know, it's funny how, yes, you know, going down the road a little bit to Oregon, but that was the connection that led to me um, being a part of Timbers. And in fact, it was, I had job offers in Eugene, but I knew that my, I wanted to go all in with the Timbers in with Portland. And so that was a big thing of, of making sure that I was going to be in Portland because I was doing that commute as a student. Um, I've, you know, that drive between Eugene and Portland, I, I would do it all the time because I would come home for Timbers games during the school year. Um, but at the end of the day, I knew I needed to be in Portland when all was said and done and just see where this thing went with the Timbers. So you mentioned the University of Oregon. You actually had the good sense, however, to marry a Coug, we'll say. Um, and not only that, but a very good soccer player. Your wife, who you mentioned earlier, led the 2011 Women's Premier Soccer League in goals while playing with the Portland Rain. Did you ever call a Duck Cougar game when she was in college? And So she, how was, she was a couple of years ahead of me. Okay. Um, she she had the bad luck of her senior year being right as WUSA folded. You know, if you remember, it was the week of the 2003 Women's World Cup beginning that they announced WUSA would fold, which was a very, very, very cruel irony. Um, I'm of the belief that her equivalent player today is a first round NWSL draft pick. No problem. Um, she was just in an era when the opportunities were scarce. So she was a couple of years in front of me. She ended up, um, Tara Erickson became the soccer coach at Oregon from Portland State. Well, Nicole had played for Tara like an ODP. So Tara hired her as a grad assistant at Portland State, brought her to Oregon. The other assistant coach was Mike Smith, who has yeah. been in charge of the Timbers and Thorns Academies for years. So we've known Mikey a long time. Um, and, and she knew Andy as well. So that was where we met. We didn't start dating until a couple of years later. This is incidentally a, another part of like what might have been Portland Timbers history. So in 2009, they launched a WPSL team, the Portland Rain. And the guy that owned it, very similar to Abe Alizeda of a couple of years prior in the Portland Timbers, early in the season, runs out of money, disappears as being hunted by the FBI and the SEC. So the team limps on the Portland Rain year over year. Every year was a different owner. Um, Scott Thompson, who I was involved basically getting Nicole to work for Scott at Bridal Mile. Scott also played a role in Nicole and I first starting to date. In fact, Scott takes credit for us dating, which I don't entirely agree with, but I'm not going to argue the point. Um, he, he was instrumental in it becoming at one point the BSC Portland Rain and Bridal Mile Soccer Club, which was Scott's club based at OES, took them over for a time. John Matting, who's been involved in OISA, um, he sort of helped run the team for a year. Nicole won the WPSL Golden Boot in 2011, uh, even though she played half the year with a sprained knee. So she basically just became a left-footed player. So at the time... If you remember, there was a USL Women's League back then in 2010, in 2011. There was a Seattle Sounders women's team. They were not affiliated. They just shared the name. There was also Vancouver Whitecaps women who were affiliated with the Whitecaps. Christine Sinclair was a part of that team. Um, through, you know, my involvement in this, talking with Gavin Wilkinson, there was, in the summer of 2011, the conversation that Gavin and I and others were having was, well, what if we did Portland Timbers women? 
what if the Timbers took in Portland Rain, and instead of being in WPSL, they were in the USLW League, and there would be a Portland Timbers women's team, same branding, same logo, everything. That was the plan. What I think happened is the the chaos, the money, the everything in 2011, which was way, way more, I think, than than anyone anticipated, put it on the back burner. So the Timbers in 2012, they actually helped fund the team. The, the Portland Rain were a part of the Timbers Alliance of Youth Clubs with the thought that perhaps in 2013, we would then launch Portland Timbers Women and there would be concurrent Timbers men's and women's clubs. In the end, NWSL happens, the thorns happen, it takes a different path. But there is a scenario there where there would have been a Timbers women's team playing against the Sounders women and the Whitecaps women, and maybe a slightly different path for professional, semi-professional women's soccer in this country, at least in the Northwest. There was a lot of interest in that concept, um, but then obviously the U.S. Soccer Federation sort of changed the plan. But it's a fun sort of what if in uh, in Timbers history there that you know my wife was a part of and and I was a part of as well in a way. It's interesting. You mentioned uh, quite a bit about the women's game and opportunity. You, when you were at the University of Oregon, a lot of your experience was specifically calling women's games, right? Was that, that was a huge part of it. Yeah. Calling calling Oregon women's soccer. Um, I have a lot more connections in the women's game actually than the men's game in some ways. Uh, in fact, Twyla Kilgore, who's the interim coach of the U.S. Women, was a bridesmaid in our wedding twelve years ago. She's one of my wife's very good friends. Um, we have a lot of fun connections on that side. You know, Karina LeBlanc and I are friends because we work together at Fox, Mike Smith and his involvement. Um, you know, Nicole from her playing days in, in the Portland rain and some of those players at Oregon. And so that's where, you know, as much as it might've felt like I was parachuting back into the women's game this last summer doing the women's world cup in Australia, having not regularly called women's games really since the 2015 world cup in Canada, um, it's actually been a bigger part of my life than I think most people realize in large part because of my wife, but also because that experience calling Oregon soccer. In fact, the second or is this is actually a fun story. The second Oregon soccer game I called, and this is in the 2005 season, they were playing the university of Portland and Tara had the idea. It's the same thing that John Spencer did in 2011. He had the field set at Providence park. Um, Jeld Wenfield was then set at 70 yards wide. We're going to play that style. Tara had the same idea for when Oregon played UP, we're going to squeeze the, the dimensions of the field to try to squeeze the UP juggernaut. The problem is the groundkeeping staff, who were normally impeccable, it was a grass field then, didn't hide the old lines well enough. And I can still see in my mind's eye Christine Sinclair with a look on her face of complete annoyance, pacing out the width of the field. And you could see how annoyed she was that 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 was how Oregon thought they were going to win. So Christine Sinclair scored four goals. Megan Rapino scored a goal. And UP absolutely clobbered Oregon. Um, but that was the second game I ever called as the voice of Oregon soccer was again. And, and it's amazing to think Christine Sinclair and Megan Rapino played in the same college team. Um, but that that's a neat memory I have of of sort of, again, those those funny connections way back with some of these icons of the women's game to say nothing of my great Megan Rapino story and the bald face truth, but we'll see if we get there or not. Go for it. So in, I come to work in Portland on the radio. I get on part of John Kinzano show. Um, Kinzano, who was my best man at that 
the wedding, incidentally, um, and one of my very good friends in all the years since. In the fall of 2008, um, Megan Rapinoe's final year at UP, they were playing Notre Dame in the NCAA tournament at, at Merlot Field, sold out in 20 seconds. And I was saying to him, listen, we got to have her on. Like, she's going to be a big star. She'd had, I think at that point, two caps with the U.S., separated by two years in a torn ACL. So she, she was not Megan Rapinoe, future president of the U.S. level, clearly, but mm-hmm. people in Portland knew she was going to be a big deal. And so I said to him, like, we got to have her on. This is might be your final game in Portland. She's going to be a star. You know, and he's a sports radio host, right? So women's college soccer is not high on the list of things they tend to talk about. He was in a weird sort of David Letterman 1980s-esque thing of like doing radio stunts that fall. So he agreed to have Megan Rapino on the show if she would do a penalty shootout against me in the hallway because I had been a goalkeeper as a kid. So you can find a YouTube video from 2008, me with like hair, uh, a year and a half out of college, Megan Rapino in her final season as a college player at UP, and Rapino is pinging a mini soccer ball at me in this narrow hallway at the old building of the radio station, and I'm trying to not get severely injured by this thing. Incidentally, I have the ball still. It's got scuff marks on it. Um, but that's another one of those fun things of where, you know, for what Megan Rapino became, for whatever you would say that I've become, um, years before any of us were that, having that sort of fun intersection um, and connection there was something, again, I'm sort of proud of and very few people tend to know about. I'm going to find that video and I'm going to put it up with this, <laughs> uh, no doubt. So I want to ask two follow-ups to actually both directions you went. First, before we really leave the University of Oregon, I want to ask for would-be broadcasters or people who are interested in a path you took, are there... are and I, I mean this in the, the most positive way possible. Are there more opportunities in calling uh, women's sports at a college? Are they, I mean, they're, uh, they're still underrepresented, I'm sure, um, at colleges, but the technology is there. Is that a place somebody wanting to get into this can find opportunity to, you know, learn their craft, to bring these stories to families who's, you know, I say kids still even in college are, are going to these games and can, can still do the job. Um, is that a, a you know, is that still a path people can look at and say, there's an opportunity here to do a service and work on my, my craft. Absolutely. And as you say, the technology is advanced that most collegiate sporting events are streamed or televised in some capacity somewhere, which is quite remarkable, you know, for us to be able to turn our TV on and watch an Oregon soccer game in recent years, you know, Graham Abel, who was another old friend of, of Nicole's and their connections um, coaching the team now, you know, former goalkeeper coach uh, at for the U.S. women as they won back-to-back World Cups. That's a really neat thing. The paradox is there's there's a lot of people doing it. So the opportunities are out there, but a lot of the gigs are taken in a weird way. It's something I love about the University of Oregon. In the same way as we did in high school, Eric and I basically through force of will created uh, opportunities for ourselves to call games in a way that there it did not exist before. For us. There were no students calling games on the campus radio station. Now it has grown into an incredible program where there's about a dozen kids at Oregon that call everything, all these different sports across the Oregon Ducks spectrum, but also high school sports as well, including some young women, which is fantastic to see. So, you know, it's different to when I was doing it, where it was basically me on my own calling Oregon women's soccer, Oregon softball, and Oregon women's lacrosse. 
Oregon women's lacrosse was actually hugely influential in my entire career. That was my original gig. That was my big break at Oregon. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity to get to do. And so now all of those games are on. So there's more competition, but the opportunities are there. And so I would say to any aspiring broadcaster, A, um, the University of Oregon is as good a place as any in the country. And I mean this to go and actually get on air experience because you have to get on air experience. But it is neat to see how it has proliferated to to the volume of women's games especially that are on and the platform that they're given now as compared to 20 years ago is almost unrecognizable it's pretty neat and so so also my follow-up here is you you ended up at the, the bald-faced truth with john canzano um and you started your own show strong at night i'm curious what was your mindset at that time as you you started getting into this full-time and you were here and what did you see strong at night being as uh, as far as an opportunity uh, it was basically me goofing around for an hour at night is very much what it became. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be a sports radio host. I wanted to be a play-by-play announcer. But the opportunity was presented to me as we shuffled things around. It was the early, kind of late winter, early spring of 2009. You know, do you want to host the night times? What was interesting about it is at the exact same time, this so Merritt publicly signaled his intention to pursue an MLS expansion bid in the fall of 2008. Might've been Labor Day weekend. So this process had been going on. And one day early in 2009, James Derby, program director at at the game and KXL, the man who hired me out of college, largely sight unseen. um, He grabbed me in the hallway one day and he said, hey, this this Timbers MLS thing, do you think it's gonna happen? Uh, And I'm like, yes, of course, lying through my teeth because it was absolutely not a sure thing and and was much more the retelling of the Timbers MLS expansion bid, much, much more miraculous than it's ever been given public credit for. This thing was dead and buried on multiple occasions. And and as I phrased it, the Timbers army turning themselves into a political action committee and merit, whether people want to or not, needs to be given the credit for his force of will to make this thing happen, despite all of the headwinds and all of the obstructions that were thrown up in City Hall. So I was like, yeah, of course it's going to And James said, if it happens, do you think it'll be big? Of course it will. Again, lying completely. We had no clue whether it was going to be big or not. We, no one had any idea up until 20 minutes before kickoff of the home opener in 2011. None of us really knew whether this thing was going to take off or not, which is what made that night in 2011 one of the best nights of my life. But he said, "Okay, well, we're going to we're going to put Timbers USL games on the radio because we basically want to get in on the ground floor and make sure that 1080 the fan doesn't get them. And if it if it blows up, it blows up. So that's how we ended up in 2009, putting Timbers USL games on the radio. I turned my Tuesday night slot into Talk Timbers. Uh, the weekly Timbers radio show we started doing. I mean, and at that time, especially on as highly rated a sports station as as the game was still unique in American soccer history to have had that sort of a weekly platform on the radio for a pro soccer U.S. on a Tuesday night, 6 p.m. It was an hour in the USL days. It was two hours in MLS, let alone the amount of talk I would do about the Timbers on my my regular show. So it basically became, in addition to everything else I was doing, I would say I was the street preacher of Portland soccer, and it would be me and my sandwich board out on the corner in the evenings to a flood of text messages from people being like, stop talking soccer. I'm switching to the other station now. 
And I get flack from people at the station. Why do you talk so much soccer? Why do you lead your sports updates with the September score? Because I'm going to. Like, that was my thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this by hook or by crook. Um, and I'm still doing it, incidentally, just on a different platform. But it was very much a, a, a fascinating time in 2009, especially because it's like you're covering this as a journalist, but also like I'm showing up to city council meetings and I'm going to these different things, trying knowing that it, it's a bit make or break for my career. If this MLS expansion bid happens, I've got a future here. I, I can I can ride this thing. If this thing was dead and buried, if it if it died and I'm of the belief that had they not gotten the MLS expansion bid, if you remember in USL, it essentially ceased to exist. They retreated to becoming a third division semi-professional league, and they kind of went dormant for a few years until about 2015. I'm of the belief that if Timbers MLS 2009 slash 2011 doesn't happen, I don't think that the Timbers exist. And if they do, it's because they've been reborn later. Um and I was fully prepared to dive into hockey. That was my backup. I loved doing hockey in college. I, I was making connections with the Winter Hawks. That was plan B. So it was very much a sense of like, I, I need this to happen. And I still remember um, the night when the final vote went through, the Timbers had a preseason game that night. It was the night. Oh, no, it wasn't when the vote went through. It was when the announcement happened. The announcement happened before the actual the final vote. It was a little bit of a leverage play by MLS but the Sounders had played their first MLS game on a Thursday night in the spring of 2009 Friday morning Don Garber came to Portland to the Marriott I know it, it was the Hilton and they had the big press conference to announce the Portland expansion bid even though like there was a bunch of stuff that still needed to be done um, and it was that night the Timbers played a preseason game against Basically, everyone on the Red Bulls that didn't play the night before in Seattle in the Sounders inaugural MLS game played against the Timbers at Merlot Field. Um, and I remember that night. I remember that game. It was a big celebration. And, you know, talking with Merritt about, like, is it going to still be the Timbers? Like, are you going to change the logo? What's the plan here? Um, but it was very much a night of, like, okay, that's that's not knowing what would happen, but just kind of like, okay, like I can feel pretty good about my future here. If Timbers MLS is going to happen, there's a pathway for me in my career. Um, and that was a pretty neat night. This is great, John. Um, so I, I've got to say, I want to transition into to MLS for you, but I want to say I'd love going to Providence Park. I've been going there since it was Civic Stadium. Like a lot of people played in there in different iterations for different things. But I also loved going to PGE, Jeldwin, et cetera. What's special about being in that park pre-MLS? Or even now? Well, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was going to say, it's funny to look back at some of the old video, you know, in the USL days, when basically that far sideline was left in center field and there were no stands. It was just an expanse of nothingness behind the benches over there, which is funny to think about. I mean, I think at the the fact that it did exist, I think means a lot. The fact that the stadium has been around as long as it has um, it's a big part of one of my opens to a Timber Sounders game. I can't remember what year was, you know, we have more history in the sport in this country than we tend to realize. Some of it has been lost in the sands of time. Some of it's been deliberately buried in that sand. But the Portland Timbers and the building itself represent living history. 
in a really cool way. And I do think it makes a difference. The fact that it's the same stadium, you know, a lot of the Portland Timbers, you're a little bit putting a square peg into a round hole. If we're going to be like really kind of brutally honest and somewhat cynical about it, there's really no connection whatsoever between the NASL Timbers and the modern Timbers. They just happen to call it by the same name. They belatedly had a similar looking logo further along than that. I want to say 2007 or eight or nine ish is when they started like compiling the old statistics from the archives and actually publishing like a all-time leading score, all-time games played, like like made it sort of one statistical history. That was that was like, as I said, 2007, 2009-ish that that happened. So it was a bit of a, of a retroactive history to connect the two. Um, but the building is the connection. The, the building is the history because the fact that it is the same place, I think, makes a huge, huge difference. I once sat in on a meet again, speaking of what if in Portland history. In 2005, there was a group of Portland business owners who wanted to launch an MLS expansion bid. Um, and I'm spacing on the guy's name. He invited me to a couple meetings. I met him through something with the Oregon Sports Authority. He was going to partner with Pachuca. And they were going to have a Timbers MLS team. They were going to be blue and white because it was going to be Pachuca connected. They were going to play at Hillsborough Stadium. They were Their, their idea was to buy Hillsborough Stadium and to redo it and, and build it. And I remember someone involved in this. I remember saying, I guys. I was a college kid and I spoke up in this meeting of like very successful older businessmen and being like, I think it's a big mistake to have the games out in Hillsborough, not have them be right downtown. And part of the argument was, well, we don't own the stadium. We don't, we don't own PG park. Like the Portland Beavers do. What do you want us to do? But I do remember one guy saying, well, you know, that's where the Hispanics live and they'll just come to games whenever. And I was like, is that really going to be your 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 thing here? Are you just going to create it? Like it was it was an awkward, tense conversation. I remember it being. But my point of bringing this up is that the 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 stadium is the connective tissue. This the stadium is what makes the history one linear history, all the way across. And the fact that it is, while we sometimes overdo it in how we try to emulate European soccer or South American soccer. Well, one of the defining characteristics of soccer in the rest of the world is stadiums are in neighborhoods. They're not in giant parking lots out in the suburbs. They're in the middle. And I think that any anyone I've ever brought to a game, anyone I've ever worked with who's come to these games, the first time Stu came, the first time Brad Friedel came, you know, Alexi's first visits, others, people like that. That's the first thing that stands out to them is not just that the stadium looks old and has a real history to it, it's got a soul to it, but also its location. And they all say, wow, it's just like whatever their frame of reference is, South America, England, Liverpool, whatever. And so that's something I think that really means a lot. And, you know, in in what became the new stadium in 2019, that was the existential moment of like, well, shoot, what do we do here? We need to expand this somehow. You know, do we buy a plot of land in Sherwood and and build our perfect giant stadium or do we maximize what we have here? Um, and I thought that was one of the best decisions that the Timbers and Merritt Paulson made was not just 
that they doubled down on the stadium itself, but that they did it in such a beautiful, incredible way. Um, that was one of the pieces I, I enjoyed doing yeah. for Fox was I did a, a basically a, a little story at a pregame show we did about the stadium expansion and kind of te- briefly in like 90 seconds telling the, the story of it. And that's something that's really cool to me is to feel like I'm going to the same stadium that my parents went to when they were college kids. My son's growing up in the same stadium I grew up in. We go to the same Mexican restaurant, the Mazatlan right there. I've been going there since Nicole and I were dating before games. Um, that kind of stuff matters in a sport that struggles sometimes with its lack of historical roots in other areas. We have that in Portland in a really special way. And and it, uh, my long-winded answer is a sign of how important that stuff means to me. That's a fantastic long-winded answer. It's well worth it, John. I want to. I do want to keep moving forward a bit, but before we do, I want to point out, and we we talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to give you a two-part question and let you go with it where you will. Can you speak to the role of regional cable sports channel during the early 2000s, 2010s? Because a few things I want to run through here. In 2011, you had the MLS broadcast call of the year on Darlington Nagby's goal against KC. Um, and I also, when I read an article about that, you talked about your uh, work with Robbie Earl, who's now with NBC, right? Um, but he was here with you. We mentioned Jake Zivin, right, who's working for Apple. Significant names now, as uncomfortable as that may make you feel with me saying it, started here and had moments. And so I want to ask you sort of a two-part question here. One is eventually, can you talk about... Um, just how incredible it is that those people came from this place and there, there are those people in those places all around, but those are our people and this is our place. And that's amazing to me to think someone we saw on our local regional cable television, um, multiple people are now national, international. The second thing is, uh, and I want to segue into sort of the technical aspect of the job a little bit. You credited Robbie for, for how that moment happened and you're quick to credit others. And it's a relationship, especially with Stu. I want you to sort of, if you can segue into the idea of a partnership in the booth and how it works and how moments are set up. And, and cause that's a, that's a, there's a feel to it, but there's also an intention to it. And I just wonder if you could shed some light on how that works. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, yeah. And I'll, and I'll start by saying that the new England revolution love to take credit for how many, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, people have come through there. They've sort of been known as the home of American soccer broadcasting. And the Philadelphia Union to an extent as well, just because Kyle Martino and Taylor Twelman both started there. Um, I think it's the coolest damn thing in the world that, that you know, Jake has gotten this gig at Apple. And so the, the two play-by-play guys, in English at least, doing MLS Cup this last year, both former Timbers announcers. I just think that's terrific. And shout out to Ross Smith as well. Yes, for the thank role you. that he played in this stuff, um, getting getting some games at Apple now, too. You know, it was interesting because back in the, the 2000s era, Fox Sports Northwest would do just a handful of games, handful of Beavers games, handful of Timbers games. And it, there were different. Todd Mansfield did some. Bob Akamian did some. Uh, Brian Davis did some who, who would go on to become the longtime voice, the Oklahoma City Thunder, because he was in Seattle at the time. They were kind of one offs. Um, it took a different turn in 2009 because all of a sudden we'll shoot if we're going to have an mls team here in two years every game is going to be on television what's that going to look like um one of the 
incredible moments of my whole career. One of the most special nights of my whole career was the 2009 Open Cup game against Seattle. Sounders had blown up in MLS. They were the story in American soccer. Timbers knew they were going to MLS. We're still in USL. And they played in the third round of the Open Cup. And it was the first time we'd done a game where it was like not just the stadium was full, but it had sold out days before. The entire Portland media was interested in this story. And the game was going to be on television. And it was a joint Timber Sounders telecast. So Andy McNamara slid over from radio to TV and worked the game with Pete Fewing, longtime Sounders broadcast analyst who coaches at Seattle U. Well, that meant because at the time I was Andy's number two. I was like the pregame host. I got to call that Timber Sounders Open Cup game on the radio on 95.5 The Game. That was my first taste of what big time sports broadcasting was like that whole the days leading up. The game itself was this incredible moment of like it was like my first hit of a drug. I'd call games before they'd been one. I think had been on the radio. Most had been streaming. But like to call what felt like a really important game on a, on a what was at the time a massive radio station. We were getting huge ratings then because the Blazers had made the playoffs again and we had them on our air. That was incredible. My dream scenario, and we talked about this at the 2009 playoffs up in Vancouver, Andy and Aaron Heinzen and I, Aaron Heinzen was our analyst, talked about this um, at dinner the night before. In fact, one of the photos that's on the Andy McNamara uh, podcast page is the three of us at Swan Guard Stadium. It was it was that game of what I really just hope happens is that Andy gets the TV gig and I can get the radio gig. My fear was they bring someone in from the outside. Andy's the radio guy. And I'm kind of stuck as the number two. That was my big fear. So 2010, we did a preseason game at Merlot Field again because the stadium was they had done like pre-construction work that winter. And I'm in the press box and Merrick comes up to me and kind of apropos of nothing. He said, uh, hey, we're going to try you on television this year. And I was like, what? Because we're going to try you on television. It had never even occurred to me to do a TV tryout. I just want to be the radio guy. And the first game I did, I actually stalled. They wanted me to do a Thursday night game, but I was so terrified. I was like, well, I can't really do a Thursday because I'm on the radio all day. I'd rather have all day to prepare. So it was a Saturday game against AC St. Louis. I still have this DVD. And it was, I had like hair and a beard. I looked very, it was after the game, it was like, hey, shave your beard next time. Funnily enough, I have the beard now. But it was Andy and I calling the game on TV. And again, it had never even occurred to me that that would be an opportunity for me. And Ryan Brock, who at the time was kind of running broadcasting and media and, and sponsorships, um, came back the next week and was like, hey, we're going to give you another game. Okay, great. I ended up calling with Andy the the Open Cup game that year against Seattle. And basically that summer, they said, okay, we're going to give you the rest of the TV games. And I ended up doing the rest of the TV games and the rest of the radio games as play-by-play. -play. They kind of flipped Andy and I. But without any specific promises for MLS. And they kind of, they let me, you know, let my legs dangle in this one. I found out later they made the decision in the summer that they were going to give me the MLS gig. They didn't tell me until like a three weeks before the season. I had lunch with Mike Golub, and he, he again, mid-sentence was like, we're going to use you on TV this year. Part of their concern, rightly enough, was I was 25. That's crazy. Like even now at 38, I'm, I'm really, really young for this gig. 
25 is like handing a baby keys to a car. Like it's ridiculous. And so they really wanted to have a more veteran hand beside me. And that was where Robbie Earl came in. And at that time, Robbie had, you know, had some unfortunate things happen to him in the UK with ITV. He was kind of starting his life and career over in the US. And I don't know how the connection was made, but it basically, I remember at the Christmas party in 2010, Merritt saying like, you know, we're maybe going to bring in this guy named Robbie Earl. Now, I didn't know who Robbie Earl was. The name was vaguely familiar, but remember, he played in the Premier League in an era before it was on U.S. television. And he was a pundit in the U.K. in a time before we really ever, it's not like now where we see all the clips on social media of Jamie Carragher and, and other guys like arguing. We didn't see any of that. So we didn't really know who this guy was. Pat Brown, 15 years, was the Timbers local director. John Bradford was the producer in those days. Um, you know, all of a sudden here's this guy, Robbie, and I wasn't sure what to expect from him. We had breakfast at the nines one morning, a few weeks before the season. And they had us go out to the, the KPTV studio. And we, we called the first half of that prior year's Portland Seattle open cup game. as like a tryout. Now, I don't know, had our chemistry been bad, they weren't going to fire Robbie Earl. So <laughs> it was basically me trying to earn my gig, but he couldn't have been nicer and more friendly. And the two things that stand out, number one, the first game we did in Colorado, there was a writer there from ESPN who could not have been more excited to be meeting and talking to Robbie Earl. Game two in Toronto, the TSN announcers burst through the door of our booth, couldn't be more excited to be talking to Robbie Earl. Game three in New England, the announcers from the, the Revs local announcers couldn't have been more excited to be meeting and talking to Robbie Earl. They didn't know or care who I was. And I remember saying to Pat, I think this guy's a much bigger deal than we're, we understand, as ignorant as we were to who Robbie Earl was. And so it's funny to think now exactly what a big deal he's become on American television at the, at the time, because he he refused to ever talk about his own. I would try on air sometimes, have him talk about his own playing experience. He didn't want to do that. The other thing that was great about him is he fought some important battles for me. I was so young and so naive. I was not nearly as, not even just polished, but just intelligent enough as I am now. The types of things I said on air back then, beyond stupid, beyond clumsy. Some of the things I, I publicly criticized John Spencer once because he was refusing to say that playing the Seattle Sounders was the most important game ever. He had to call me, guys, the coach of the team. He's got to call in the, the idiot young TV broadcaster to his office to explain why he's not making a bigger deal out of this first ever game against the Sounders. Robbie was a really important firewall to me and helped sort of, hey, he's a good kid. Give him time. Don't worry about it. When there were some people, understandably, who were getting really annoyed at the obnoxious kid who was trying to like, you know, make his name and earn some street cred. So I owe Robbie a lot. I can see in some of those old games where he's sort of like trying to not laugh or roll his eyes at me live on the air with some of the things I'm saying. Um, but he was great. He taught me a ton about broadcasting. He flew up. He and his wife flew up for our wedding that first off season, January of 2012. Didn't have to do that. Um, and and so it was it was wonderful to have the two and a half years with him in Portland. We had another year and a half at NBC. He was one of the regular analysts that we'd rotate on the NBC games. It was cool. He and I left at the same time, end of June 2013, leaving the Timbers for NBC. He came back and did a couple other games. He was a big part of Ross Smith eventually getting the gig. 
Uh, it's a great trivia question of who the local announce team was after Robbie and I left because it was not Jake Zivin and Ross Smith. And so Robbie's meant a lot to me over the years. And the fact that Jake came in, got the gig kind of at the end of 2015 and has taken it to wonderful places is great. But that relationship is everything. It's a partnership. There's plenty of examples of great broadcasters that aren't friends there's plenty of examples of legendary TV partnerships where they despise each other. They don't talk to each other off the air. You can fake it, but I'm a big believer that if you're friends and if you get along and you trust each other off the air, it's going to make the on-air product that much better. And I've been very lucky to have had in Robbie Earl, in Brian Dunseth, in Danielle Slayton, in Alexi Lawless and Brad Friedel, um, and certainly now with Stu Holden really, really good, legit friendships that I've developed and that partnership comes across on the air. Um, and so it's neat to think back to those days, young and naive as I was. The Darlington Nagby story, what's interesting is that the goal goes in and my first thought was, oh man, that was a really good goal. I really hope I didn't screw that up. My fear in the moment, because it was right at the end of the first half, my fear in the moment was if I butchered that call, poor Darlington, when he plays this to his grandkids on YouTube, is going to have to mute the announcer. Like, it's the only time I've ever in my career asked a, a TV truck, Pat and, and JB, to play me back the clip during a commercial break of halftime. Because I just needed to hear it and needed to, it, it, had I spent the whole second half wondering if it was any good or not, I would have, it would have distracted me. And I just needed to hear it. Okay, that's fine enough. Cool. What's interesting is that that night, it blows up on Sports Center. Sports Center top ten. You know, it, it's it's still very early social media days. In those days, they would take either the home team or the away team's feed for like the the they didn't have a streaming package, but it was like the MLS Direct Kick satellite package or the highlights they would distribute to places like ESPN Sports Center. Long story short, because we were on over the air that night and because Sporting Kansas City was on uh, satellite, they took Sporting KC's feed. So for the first 24 hours, if you watched the Darlington Nagby goal in 2011, you heard Cal Williams, the Sporting Kansas City announcer. You heard his call. It wasn't until midday on Sunday, and I've never known who made a phone call, who made this happen. But it was 24 hours later that all of a sudden it was my clip that was on social media. It was my clip on YouTube, on the league website. It was my clip on sports shows. That, I've told Darlington this, that call launched my career. It absolutely did. I would probably call it differently now. That's not the point. That gave me a notoriety. That, and then, you know, there were people watching that 2011 Timber season, watching for the Timbers Army and watching for Robbie Earl that I got on people's radars way, way, way sooner than I would have otherwise. But that was as big an individual moment to the launch of my career as any. The funny irony is if you watch it back, Footy, it was often called Footy Denso, but we all just called him Footy. He tries to, he's thinking that the shot's going to miss. He's trying to redirect it. Watch the clip back, the Darlington Nagby goal. You'll see Footy is trying to redirect it in. What he would have actually done is blocked it. His own player shot. Footy was inches away from blocking maybe the greatest goal in Timbers history. And the goal that launched Darlington Nagby's career and the goal that launched my career. And it's because he misses it with his head trying to redirect it in that all these incredible things happen after the fact.
He can take credit for both then. Right? <laughs> His lack of vertical in that moment. I do want to um I want to be cognizant of time as well as we're moving through this, but I I, I want to ask you something about specifically influences. We talked about this a little bit, but it's halftime of a game, and this is something I I mean, when I watch you call games, I appreciate that that's John Strong. That's one of us doing the game. And I I just like your work. But I also know at halftime you say something specific, and I want you to say, if you could say it in your words, and I'm curious if there's any Bill Shonley Rip City in that. So the Bill Shonley homage that I would do is at sign-off on the radio days, I would say this, you know, for so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, this is John Strong saying from all of us to all of you, wherever you may be, good night. Which then turn I I turned that into my sign off would be in the Timbers games either this is John Strong saying good either good night from the Rose City or good night to the Rose City whether it was a home or away game I don't for the life of me really know where forty five minutes down forty five to go came from it was probably on the radio because I don't think I would have had the guts to have like been the new guy at NBC and just start some sort of weird shtick. I'm also shocked that I actually continued the weird shtick from the radio on to television, but I don't know any, I can't remember any specifics of why I do it or where it comes from other than just try to figure out a way to toss to break at the end of the half. A number of years ago, 2017 ish, I was doing a UEFA champions league game in LA and where like Brad Friedel and I would call the Champions League games was basically it was where Mike Pereira would do his referee analysis for NFL games. We called the Pereira Cube. It was a part of our main stage. So we're separated from like Rob Stone and the analyst desk by a glass partition. And we go to break and I did it some, you know, 45 minutes down, 45 to go, Juventus two, Bayern Munich one, whatever. And I see out of the corner of my eye, Rob Stone march over and he starts banging on the wind that this glass partition between us, like he's at the end of the movie, the graduate. (laughs) And he basically in his own particular profanity laced way, what he said to me was, if you're going to do something on television, then you have to do it all the way. There are no half measures. If that's going to be your thing saying 45 minutes down, 45 to go, you have to do it all the way every single time. And that was a really key lesson um for me to understand that and that's kind of why i do it now i know there are people in certain other tv networks who think it's the dumbest thing they've ever heard but i also have heard from people over the years who take great joy out of it and yeah is it silly and arbitrary and bizarre of course but so is 90 percent of what's on television so is rip city and bingo bango bongo and you have to make your free throws and any number of other things and so um all I remember is I would have started doing it on the radio and it's fun to me that that's become kind of like a thing because yeah, to have a thing and to have been around long enough in this job to have a thing is, um, is pretty neat. So yeah. And it's, it's that consistent thing also. It's just like a, a in a sense, it's like Providence park. It's a physical thing or it's a thing that ties people to the moment. It gives the emotion something tangible. Uh, it is and and you know the other that was the other interesting thing is one of the other sort of things that i do is that the elongation of the vowel sound in a player's name 
uh, when they score a goal. And even though it, it was in a very, it was a very proto way, the Nagby goal was the launch of that. Because I say in a false to Darlington, Nagby, as I'm waiting to see if it goes in or not. And I remember someone who was involved in the broadcast call of the year award, which isn't a thing anymore, in which, to be fair, I probably won because the other two finalists were both Arlo White calls. So I think the Sounders fans split their vote and the Portland fans voted for me. He's your Ross um, Perot. Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember someone involved at the league being like, I like the thing where you like held that vowel sound out. And it was like, huh. And and I, in 2011, you can find a video. The first Timber Sounders game in Portland, MLS did a behind the scenes documentary on it. And it's Glenn Davis calling it on ESPN. It's me calling it on Timbers radio. It's Arlo White calling it on Sounders radio, which again is fun to think of where the two of us would end up going. I was experimenting and toying with a full Spanish language goal type call on the radio that year to see, is this something I could incorporate in television? And the answer is no, it was, I was terrible at it, but that was my, if that's not going to work because Andres Cantor is a big influence to me as well. What about the vowel thing? So sort of that whole year, I was basically workshopping stuff in, in 2011. Um, and so the Nagby goal was also the germination in a way of one of the, the other sort of big things I do and, and how I call some of those goals, which is to sort of hold that note of the player's name all the way through. It started in that, in that, in that game. And I, John, I'm keeping an eye on the time as well. I've got a, a ton of questions uh, that are technical and about world cups and about why you're the luckiest person in the world to watch Croatia that closely. Um, but <laughs> I do want to ask a few um a few more questions specifically, and I'll just have to find a way to get you back on again. I want to ask about Grant Wall, and I want to talk about, since you're somebody who works at Fox, um, and specifically the first guest I could, I have on who could speak to his impact and what he's done to champion journalism uh, and soccer for all. And I'm wondering if you could take a moment to speak to him. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see in 20 years we live in an era of, of great immediacy to everything. And we sort of lost sight of long-term legacies and building a long-term legacy. Everyone wants to go viral now. Everyone wants to make their money now. Everyone wants to gain social media followers now. What will we be remembered for in 20 years? That's a huge focus for me. And I'm interested how that will play out for Grant. It's interesting. There's a collection of his writings that his wife has helped to publish and she's written the forward for, which is either coming out or about to come out. Um, because in part, people forget how important Grant Wall was in a time when soccer got so little mainstream media coverage. The fact that he was at Sports Illustrated and the fact that he would put soccer into Sports Illustrated back when SI was as significant a platform as there was. I still have, in, in, and I'm, I'm going to do my best not to get overly emotional here as I talk about Grant, but sure. I have a lot of those covers, like especially the World Cup preview covers of Sports Illustrated. That was to, to on a Thursday afternoon, come home from school, get Sports Illustrated in the, um, in the mailbox and have soccer on the front was incredible. That was 
while it's somewhat more esoteric, perhaps, that I would argue is a really important part of Grant's legacy because it helped to create the legitimacy of soccer as a mainstream sport in a way that I don't know. I don't know that any other journalist has had ever and will ever have as much of a hands-on impact in that regard of what those types of things meant, let alone the things that later in his career, later in his life, he was specifically writing and advocating for, more important in a different way. His role in Sports Illustrated in the 90s and 2000s, hugely, hugely important, and maybe gets lost a little bit just because it's easy to forget the dynamics of the media industry then. Point being, it was quite a thrill to have Grant work with us. He was our sideline reporter off and on starting in 2015. He'd do MLS games with us. He'd do national team games with us. That was an incredibly thrilling thing. I, I don't know. I've had a lot of people over to our house for Portland home games. I can't remember if Grant ever came to our house, but I had many meals with him. I shared many experiences with him. We had a fantastic sit down with Clint Dempsey before a Sounders game where as Clint would do was giving us these sort of bland, short, unusable answers soccer wise. And Grant smartly pivoted and was like, what'd you do this winter? And Clint lights up and he gives us this incredible 10 minute answer about in very vivid, in some ways, graphic detail about hunting wild hogs in Texas and I've never seen Clint Dempsey as excited to talk about anything ever as he did in that. And Clint leaves and we all look at each other. I think it was me and Alexi and Grant. And Grant's like, that answer was amazing. And I'm like, yeah, we can't use any of that on air. Because that's just going to create way too much trouble there. Of Like, here's Clint Dempsey's hog hunting. So to fast forward a bit, um, this is sort of one of the untold stories from Qatar. The morning of the Argentina-Netherlands game. I was really, really, really sick. My body basically broke down, as it has a tendency to do sometimes because we'd been going every day. And then there was like a two-day break between the round of 16 and the quarterfinals. And my body, as it does, was like, okay, cool, we're done now, boom. The morning of that game, I had doctors in the room. Um, calling that game, I was a wreck. I was freezing cold in the first half. I was sweating profusely in the second half. I had a pounding headache and extra time. I was just trying to survive through Argentina and this incredible Argentina-Netherlands game. The Dutch get two late goals. It goes to penalties. It's amazing. I'm like a physical wreck all game. Fighting with my voice. It's getting all hoarse. We finish the, like the penalty kick, final penalty kick, the game's over. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, one of our, um, our, our audio guy who would be in the stadium with us is standing right next to us, which is not normal. And he's ashen white. And he grabs, reaches over Eric to grab me because normally the game would end and we would turn around, put our backs to the field. There's a small camera, like literally this far in front of us, right in front of us to those who can't see me right now. And we would tape a, a hit that would go into the postgame show. And he grabbed me by the arm and he said, whatever you do, don't turn around. There's a medical emergency behind you. I guarantee you don't want to see it. Just keep facing the field. I'll tell you when it's done. Now, in the moment, I'm thinking... An older Argentine broadcaster is suffering, you know, some sort of heart palpitations because of the chaos of the moment. I don't know anything different. <clears throat> and we sit there for a while, for a while. 
remember having awkward eye contact with, I forget his name. He's a former Argentina national team player who was working as an analyst on French television. And he was like losing his mind and joy after this. And he looks at me and I'm very somber because I know something horrible has happened behind me and I'm staring at the field. And eventually say, okay, turn around, do your thing. We're walking out of the building. And one of our other security guys who's been with us a long time says it was Grant. It was Grant Wall. And it's like, I don't know how to describe the least likely thing you've ever expected to hear in your life. Triple that. And that's our reaction to like, Grant Wall has had a medical emergency and we're not sure if he's going to make it. It doesn't even compute. And yeah, it was our, basically our sort of ex-military security guys, ours and Telemundo's were the first responders. They were performing CPR on him. He was sitting right next to our audio guy and next to other American journalists like Steve Goff, who I remember seeing afterwards. And it was like, they looked, he looked right through me. We, we made eye contact. He didn't even see me. Um, the next night we did England, France. And at the beginning of the game, I'm still sick as a dog. and I could feel the laryngitis coming. So I actually, I'm struggling through England, France. By the time I got back to my hotel room, I had like a, a steroid pack that they, it was basically the other half of what they'd given to Rob Stone when he had laryngitis at the beginning of the tournament. But remember, at that time, all we knew about Grant was he'd been really sick and then he's dead. And now I'm really sick. And so I'm terrified. I'm hiding this from my wife. I don't want her to know that I'm sick. They, we had been told that they might show this Grant Wall memorial that's in the tribunal at some point during the game. We don't know when. And we're five seconds out of break for the second half. And on the world feed, I'm getting a count in my ear knowing that whenever the count ends, we're going to wipe to whatever's on the screen in front of me because it's a world feed. And this thing comes up and it's the Grant Wall memorial. And I've got four seconds to compose myself and to think of something to say. And I basically just started crying and they cut away to the field. And I just, I literally said like, Stu, I just need you to talk for a minute. And it was not, my sadness was, it was for Grant, but it was also for his wife and his brother getting that phone call. Again, the last thing you'd ever expect, let alone at the time, how did he die? Why did he die? Was there foul play though? Like that, that 24 to 48 hours, I'm projecting my wife getting that phone call, right? Like it was just so the next night we had an event to celebrate all of our Fox crew because some were going to be leaving after the quarterfinals. And I had one of our video guys who worked at the IBC come up to me and he was asking me, you know, that England-France game last night and when this happened, when that happened. And I said, I stopped him. I said, I got to be honest, I don't remember any of the game. I was so mentally gone. I was so physically a wreck. I don't remember any of the, so it did, it created a weird, you know, and then you're trying, yeah, you're, you're figuring out what exactly happened to Grant. You're thinking of his wife and his brother and his family members and his friends, friends of his that he was staying with. They've got to deal with this stuff. They're repatriating the body. I mean, there's all this stuff that like, you know, and it's not, again, it's not about me. It's 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 my sadness for him, but my sadness for his family. All the while, I'm, I'm now hiding from my wife that I'm horribly sick. Because I know if I tell her I'm sick, she's going to be a wreck. And I didn't say anything to her until I got home. Um, but it was just, yeah, it's, it's, and clearly still is something that, 
I mean, it was only a year and a half, a year plus ago. Um, what I hope, as with any of us, what I hope is that people appreciate and understand 10, 20, 30 years from now who Grant was, what Grant did, and what he meant to soccer in this country in a broad variety of ways. Because early in his career, it was, yeah, getting soccer on the cover of SI. Later in his career, it was advocating for things in a very loud way that need to be advocated for in a loud way. And few of us, I'll include myself, unfortunately, in, in, in certain ways, have the guts to advocate for in a loud way. That he was willing to, and, and some really incredible investigative journalism, including the trips that he took to Qatar in the year leading up. Big, big boy, big girl, journalism with a capital J type stuff that he did right up until the very end. Even as he occasionally, you know, would, would by his own admission, have a glass of wine and start tweeting and then have to, you know, apologize to the Leeds <laughs> press officer. Or right. He and Stu had a funny conversation one day during the CONCACAF Gold Cup Women's World Cup summer of 2019. You know, that that's life. That's social media. That just happened. Um, but yeah, hoping that his legacy is, is justified to what he did. But it was, you know, 10 rows behind us. And, and you can't help but feel emotionally connected to the whole thing. Um, and I remember that the game itself that night, certainly the England-France game the next night, I only remember any of it because I've seen the highlights back. But but everything else just sort of took on this other air of, and I've rarely been in as quiet a car ride as us driving back that night from Lucille, waiting to get a text on, you know, whether Grant was going to make it or not. So, Yeah. John, I want to thank you for for sharing that story about Grant specifically. That moment, I know how hard it had to have been. Actually, I don't know how hard it had to have been, but I can imagine, and how hard it could still be. Uh, but it definitely reminds me um, of how we started this episode, dedicating it to Bernie Fagan. I'd love to add Grant Wall to that, and it just reminds me that this game is meant to bring us together. That's it's the a point. special game. It's a special sport, and I think it's. <clears throat> it's a special community as well. Um, and yeah, I'll look forward to, to volume two of our conversation. Cause I know there's a million things still left. To, I'm so happy you said <laughs> to that. Talk about. <laughs> For now. Oh, go ahead. That's, yeah. that's what's cool. I'm of the firm belief that any of us who do this, we, we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the fame. Um, we don't do it for the massive TV audiences. We do it out of a sense of love. And that's something that's cool. And that's something that I've enjoyed so many of the dynamics of what it's like to be an American soccer broadcaster for Fox sports is the exact same as when I was the Portland Timbers broadcaster on 95.5. The game is you're, you're collectively working to push a giant boulder up a hill. I don't know if we're ever going to get the boulder up to the top of that hill. I don't even know what that would look like. Um, But it's neat to be a part of it and to kind of be in the proverbial trenches with a lot of people um, because we love this sport and, and, you know, there there is something special about it, different to had I become a hockey broadcaster or a baseball broadcaster or something else. Well, John Strong, I'll tell you this. The next time I see you on TV, I'm going to say thank you to the fact that an accountant from Coos Bay came to work for Harry Merlo. <laughs> and I know that right next to you is Stu Holden and the mayor of Hermiston. And I'll feel very <laughs> comfortable in that game. Thank you, John. You bet, Billy. 
You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim So let's be 